0: The one thing we ask of the Lord that is what we seek is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our lives, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Father, we are thankful for Your hospitality to us, that You welcome us into Your presence and You welcome us into Your heart. Father, we want to return the favor and we want to welcome You into our homes and into our hearts. We wanna cast our lives on you and know that they are in your hands, that they are the safest place we can possibly be in life or in death or in sickness, that we know that we are safe in your hands, that uh, there's nothing in creation that can destroy us because we are secure in you. Father, I pray for the hospitality of of every church that's meeting this morning uh, around the world in our own community that they open their doors to your presence, the presence of your Spirit to be with us. And Father, we specifically open the doors to our church and ask that your Spirit dwell among us in a way that uh, is real and that is tangible and that is uh, convicting and that is comforting and that is consoling. And Father, we ask and we invite you into our homes and into our hearts and that you give us the mind of Christ, that we can make good decisions, that we can live well, that we can uh, do the work for your kingdom that you've called us to do. Father, we pray all these things as we give the time to you now as we look into your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. Yeah, it's been a big gap since we looked at the book of Colossians. Uh, Before Easter, then we went on vacation, went into... um, to the motherland, to England, and uh, so and we're down to the last paragraph, the last section of the book, but we're going to finish it this morning just because of my OCD tendencies to finish what we started, <laughs> so, so we are going to finish the book, and um, it, it's, uh, it's a section of the book that is um, that easy to gloss over, easy kind of just to, oh, he's signing off here, but it's a big section. Of the book, so you have to think. Well, the Holy Spirit included it for a reason, and I think it deserves to be looked at. And I think when we look at it, we will see um, what uh, what Paul is getting at—that uh, uh, we are seeing a group of people who practice the preference for God. That's what I'm entitling this this message this morning, and not presence. You, you know, Brother Lawrence wrote the book "Practicing the Presence of God." Uh, well, this is sort of a play on words. They're practicing the preference. In other words, they prefer this group of people, preferring God. Uh, we, we kind of, in our, in our culture, in our American culture, 21st century, we pretty much live in sort of an abstract world. We live in the world of ideas, and um, it's not really, really concrete. And I'm not just talking about um, social media or the internet, the, the virtual world. I'm talking about just our, our world in general. We have a distance between what goes on in the physical part of the earth. Uh, most of us eat food uh, without farming. We don't have really a, a contact with the food that we eat. Uh, we don't go to, to the markets like in other parts of the world where you will see, you know, a side of beef hanging there and or pig's feet over here. And, and we just kind of we get them, you know, wrapped nicely into the grocery store and that's it. Uh, we wear clothes that we didn't grow or we didn't weave or didn't sew together. Uh, there, somebody did it but they're probably halfway around the world, the ones who did. They did touch the clothes and did sew them together. Uh, my grandparents were cotton farmers, and in Prosper, Texas, where they where they farmed, there was only one thing in town. Well, a couple of things. There was a store, but there's one big thing in town. The, the, the community revolved around the cotton gin, and now that cotton gin is gone. Uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a cotton farm around Prosper, Texas. Uh, it's just not, doesn't exist and there's this distance we live in sort of this now we live in this ideal world world of abstracts thoughts uh, i can't imagine for a second that my grandfather ever laid on his bed contemplating what does it mean to be a real man but that's what we're doing today and we argue over that i can't imagine my grandfather ever thinking that but what Paul does is he brings, with all of his letters, but especially Colossians, he brings it down to the concrete earth, the real, real life. He takes it out of the abstract and brings it down to real life. A couple of years ago I, at Summit to Summit, I met this man, and we, we kind of developed a friendship over the weekend. He's actually from Florida, and, uh, but came with a friend to, to camp that year. And we got to talking about it. And he was, and then as time went on, he started to share a little bit more about his life and about his family. And he comes from a, a church that holds the Bible in high view, a high view of the scriptures, a very, you know, authoritative, authoritative view of the Bible. Uh, and, and they have a, an attitude, they have a, a, a policy that they do not really firm or at all same-sex marriage or same-sex relationships, and they're, they're standing firm on that. And then he goes on to tell me, he says, well, but about six months ago, my daughter came to me and said she's in a same-sex relationship with his, with another woman. And the church wasn't officially kicking them out, but they felt unwelcome and never came back. And he says, now I don't know what to do. And he says, because I secretly hope that they find a church somewhere where, they can, where the gospel will be preached into their lives, but they're not welcome in mine. Now... That's just what what my point is, that we have these abstract ideas of what's right and what's wrong, and it's black and white, and then all of a sudden it hits real life, and we get confused. What do we do? How do we handle this? How do we handle this situation? Uh, I think that's one of the big purposes. I wrote my dissertation on short-term missions, and I think that's one of the big uh, purposes of short-term missions, that we don't see poverty. We don't see... uh, Witchcraft much, you know, in in practice in a pagan sort of way. Uh, We don't see homelessness very much. Most of us don't. Um, But you go to take kids to a third world country and it opens their world, opens their eyes to a whole new world. And suddenly that abstract idea of people starving or children not going to school, suddenly that abstract deal suddenly gets real in real life. What do we do? How do we handle it? Well, Paul takes this letter and he brings it back to earth. And I think this last section just reminds us, if nothing else, it reminds us of a lot more, but if nothing else, it reminds us that this is a real person writing a real letter to real people. These are actual people who got the letter. This is not just Paul signing off the letter and saying, hey, you know, go in peace, God bless you. He is saying we need to have the fullness of God And from the very, very beginning of the book, he says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And he repeats that theme two or three times, well, several times actually in the book, the idea that he is praying for them to have wisdom, to have the mind of Christ, to live in the real world. And wisdom is not just some mental exercise. It's not something we just do in our minds and our heads. It is a way of being. It's a way of living. And it goes beyond. It transcends rational thought. It's, I'm not saying it's irrational. I'm saying it goes beyond that. We can say these things are black and white and, and, uh, and, bi- and binary and, and, uh, and dualistic and all those kind of things. But then real life gets really messy. And he says, this is how you live. This is how you be in the world with these situations. And this is why I think this is an important part of what this means of who these people he is bringing together. And this is not just some theological treatise that he's writing. He does write a lot of theology, but his whole point is to come together together. And he, and he starts talking to these people and, read, and mentioning these people that we're going to be looking at in a few minutes. And what I want to do this morning is kind of go through the people that he's talking about and then extrapolate some ideas and some preferences and some, some applications for what we see in these people. And I think what he's doing is he's writing to these people in Colossae that he has never met before. He says, we've never seen each other face to face. But he heard from this guy named Epaphras that there is a community of love in Colossae. And Paul hears this while he's in prison in Ephesus. And so what I think he's trying to do is that I have nothing in common. I've never met you folks. I've never seen you. I've never seen your face. But what I think he's trying to do is stitch them all together. And how do they stitch people? How do they stitch these groups together? Through people. That's how we do it. We stitch it through people. If I'm honest with myself, I would say that everything I have learned about the Christian life, I have learned through the church. And that's what Paul is getting at here. This is how it works. This is how the church works. And we can say, oh, and I just follow the Bible. Well, I have to tell you, nobody just follows the Bible. We all depend on each other to read it, to explain it, to bounce ideas off each other. People who are living now and people maybe who have lived centuries earlier but we depend on those people and I would say that everything I have learned about the Christian life I have learned through the church they have helped me understand and explain and help me to grasp the ideas of what the scriptures are saying and that's what he's doing here he is writing from prison in Ephesus to this group of people he never met and he introduces them to the letter carriers and then he introduces them to the colleagues that he's working with, and then he gives his personal greetings to the people that he's never seen or never met before, and then finally he takes the pen in his hand and signs off. But Paul being Paul, never just signs off. (laughs) He he writes a few things afterward. He has to add a few things to it. So what I want to do is just kind of go through some of these people, because I think it's important. It is a real letter to real people. He introduces the letter carriers, he, is, he sends greetings from his colleagues. He gives his own personal greetings. And finally, he takes the pen in his own hand. So the first section here in verse 7 9, he introduces us to the letter carriers. He says, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord, and I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts and he is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. And they will tell you everything that is happening. He's sending them out with a couple of, a couple of jobs. Tychicus has, has, has two jobs, basically. One is to deliver the letter. And that's not just being the postman. He's going to go and he's going to read it and he's going to explain it. He's been with Paul all this time. He's going to answer the questions, just like Phoebe did with Romans in, in, uh, when delivering the letter of Romans. He will be kind of expounding, he will be discussing, he will be answering questions and try to explain what Paul's getting at. But he's also going to explain his situation, because one of the things he has to do here is that Tychicus is coming there to give us letter, and the first question people ask is, can I trust him? Can we trust this guy? And Paul is saying, he is a dear brother, he is a faithful servant of the Christ, he no longer belongs to himself, he belongs to Jesus Christ, you can trust him. And he says, I want him to also explain our circumstances Because they must be thinking, they must be worried, here's this torchbearer of the gospel, and he's in prison in Ephesus. Are things going awry? Are things going off the rails? Is everything about to implode? And Tychicus is going to explain to them and tell them that this is is encouraging. That Paul's saying that, yeah, this is not what I intended, but this is what God has chosen, how God has chosen to spread the gospel, even though I'm in prison. And he goes, I'm gonna, I want Tikius to go and tell you the truth and tell you what's happening, but it will encourage you, not disappoint you. And then he says, the, I think he's got a third job here, and that third job is to hold Onesimus' hand. Onesimus is a runaway slave. He came from Colossae, and he wound up in Ephesus. He met Paul, came to Christ, and now he is called a dear brother, a dear and faithful brother, one of you. Now, he is going back. He's going back to Colossae, to his master. You need to read the book of Philemon. Philemon. I always want to say it in Spanish. Philemon. <laughs> uh, while you're reading the book of Colossians. Because Onesimus is going back. He is a slave, he is a runaway slave. And Paul is encouraging him to go back to his master. And he's telling Philemon. Philemon I keep we'll say Philemon. Philemon, he's what tell him the master to receive him as a brother. Now, we could say, why doesn't Paul just say slavery is despicable? We need to put an end to it. Do away with it. Do away with slavery. Well, I mentioned this a few weeks ago before we left. That that's just the way things got done. Paul could no more say do away with slavery any more than we can say, let's do away with automobiles. All of a sudden, we can't do that. We may want to do that eventually someday, but we can't do it today. Same thing with Paul. He couldn't say that. But what he can say is he can subvert it with the gospel. He can say, let's Onesimus, go back. And he tells Philemon, treat him like a brother. Same thing, working within the system but subverting it at the same time with the gospel of Christ. That's what he's asking to do. And it's great risk. It's a great risk for Paul. Paul could be risking his reputation, both for the slave owner and the slave. That, gosh, here's this guy, is this gospel, and he's sending slaves back. This guy's free, and he's sending them back. Or he could risk his reputation with the slave owners and say, oh, boy, you don't want to listen to that guy. He's just going to wreck the whole economic system. It's also a risk to, to Philemon. It's going to be a risk to him financially. It's going to be a risk to him in his reputation, in his business reputation. But most of all, it's going to be a risk for Onesimus. It's going to be a risk for him because Onesimus could be imprisoned. He could be killed. He could be beaten. And if I were him, I would be very nervous about going back to the master. But he says, do this. And so he, I think Tychicus is going to be holding Onesimus' hand as they walk back and say, don't give up. Take courage. Take courage. God will protect you. So he tells them about the, the letters. Next he tells us about these colleagues that he has. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called justice, who also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. So he's talking about his colleagues. He's got some Jewish guys with him, and there's the people, these are the guys that really understand Paul. They understand the tension of, wow, Israel fits into this whole plan of God's redemption. And these are three guys that are with him, that encourage him. And yeah, we get it, Paul. We, this, is, this is sticky. And so they've been an encouragement. But he mentions Mark especially. And he gives them instructions, say, when Mark comes, be sure you receive him, welcome him in. Now, why would he say that? Well, if you remember back in Acts 15, there was a split between Paul and Barnabas, and it was over Mark. They worked fine when they were on the island of Cyprus, Mark had some relatives there, and then when they went to Asia Minor, all of a sudden Mark says, I'm done, done." he got cold feet and bales on them. And this caused a bunch of tension between Mark and Barnabas. Barnabas was possibly Mark's uncle, maybe, or nephew or cousin. They were related somehow. And Barnabas wanted to take Mark, and Paul said, no way. Now, they both could have probably handled that a little bit better, but they didn't. And it caused a lot of problems between the two of them. And I'm sure Mark's reputation suffered because of it. And now Paul is saying, if Mark comes, receive him. I kind of think Paul is trying to be a little reconciling here, maybe even admitting that maybe he was a little bit too harsh on Mark. And he's saying reverse. He's saying, receive him. If you go to 2 Timothy, he's a lot more effusive about Mark. He loves Mark. Finally came around. So he says even about Mark, he says, go ahead and receive him. This is a bit of of, of reconciliation here. And then he goes on to talk about some, some Gentile workers, Epaphras, who's one... Of you and the servant of Christ Jesus sends greetings. He always is wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Opolis and dear friend Luke the doctor and Demas in their greetings. Okay, so now he's got three Gentile guys, and he's sending them back. The Epaphras, we know from chapter one, Epaphras was the one that came and told Paul all about there's this community in Colosse that's full of love and we've got, to, we've got to minister to them. So we already know about him. And then he goes, and I think probably in, Luke's, in, in, in Paul's line of work, Luke the doctor is probably a good person to carry around. And we know that Luke accompanied Paul all through the last half of Acts is just almost exclusively about Paul. So you've got these guys that are, that are with them together, and they are working together in Laodicea. For those who are in Laodicea, this whole area, this is people who are... are working with him Uh, these are the non-jews and these are people that demonstrate these jews and these non-jews together in this paragraph demonstrate this whole new creation that god is doing in the redemption of jesus christ it's a new work and he's saying you don't no, no longer need to do this you no longer need to pay attention to the old creation because the new creation has been launched quit paying attention to the torah being obsessed with the Torah, quit paying attention to pagan philosophers. All you need is now in Christ. And he says, do it for the kingdom of God. I'm going to pause just for a minute here and talk about this a second. He's calling them workers for the kingdom of God. Every now and then you will hear preachers say, we got to go and build the kingdom of God. We got to go and build the kingdom of God. My reaction to that is what arrogance that we think we can build the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is built by God. It is done by God. It is organized by God. It is administered by God. He will do what he wants to do. We are called to humbly serve in that kingdom. That's our job. And what we do will somehow, I don't know how, somehow we'll be taken up into the permanent kingdom when Christ returns. Don't know how it works. But somehow what we do will become a part of that full kingdom. Our job is to work for the kingdom. That preposition is very important. We are not building the kingdom. It's not up to us to make sure every brick gets laid perfectly. This is God's work. Let's don't miss what God does with what we do. He builds it. And then finally, he says, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters of Laodicea, to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see to it that it also is read in the church to the Laodiceans, and that you turn in turn read the letter from Laodicea and tell Archippus so too that you complete the ministry that you have received from the Lord. That's probably the most vague statement of the whole section. And what he's saying here is give my greetings to all those people. And I believe. He is saying that this letter is authoritative. This letter needs to be read and listened to and obeyed. It has authority. And then he says, take the letter from Laodicea and you read that as well and share these letters among you. I happen to believe that this letter to the Laodiceans is the letter we call today Ephesians. We know that letter has been a circular in that whole area. And we know that Paul wrote this and they're supposed to trade it. And I think this is what he's talking about. This is this probably ended up in the library in Ephesus finally, and that's why it got the got the name Ephesians. But we are to share these letters, and these letters are authoritative. We are to listen to them. And then finally, he gives his personal greetings to Archippus. See to it that you complete the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And then he signs off. I Paul write this greeting in my own hand, remember my chains, grace be with you. That is not just some flippant phrase, grace be with you, grace be with you. What he's saying is that, that they share a graced history. This Jewish Pharisee and these Gentile believers share a graced history that everything that they have, they have received through Jesus Christ. We are receivers of what God has done. This is a letter, a real letter, written to real people in the real world. And I think through this little section that seems kind of superfluous or seems kind of unimportant, that we get this glimpse of what a ministry and a community looks like. Of what it's supposed to look like in the church and how it's supposed to function with men and women and Gentiles and Jews and slaves and and masters of how it all works together in the gospel of Christ. This is gives us a glimpse of that. Several years ago, um, uh, Collins wrote a book called uh, From Good to Great, and it's a it's a leadership book uh, about businesses. And he makes his he makes this one theory that he repeats over and over again. And he says, make sure you get the right people on the bus. And what he means by that, if, his, if your organization is moving away and your organization is to do something specific, make sure you get people that are on the right, the right people on the bus and make sure the wrong people get off the bus. And that's where you want to start. Works great if you're, you know, if you're running an oil business or a banking industry. Okay. Paul does not have that privilege. We don't either. We don't get to choose who's the right people on the bus and who's the wrong people on the bus. And when we have that mentality, we start, to, we start to feel like this is just a treadmill of performance as Christians or that we have to maintain a strict sense of doctrinal purity or even political purity for you to be the right person on the bus. And that's not how it works at all. Paul didn't get to choose who's on the bus. I love the way he treats Onesimus. And I love the way he treats Mark. And I love the way he treats uh, the slave and the, and the master. We don't get to choose who the right people and the right person are on the bus and who's the wrong people on the bus. And neither did Paul. And so I love the way he treats all these people. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a group of people who share a passion and that's it. They share a passion for the preference of christ they all prefer him and that brings wisdom wisdom i believe is the center of spiritual maturity wisdom is the center of spiritual maturity and it's not easy to do just going to mention six things that i recognize in this group of people in Colossae that, that Paul includes. He, they share a graced history. They share a grace history, both personally and community, that they are a mixture of everyone. I had an old seminary professor who said, our witness is our most effective witness. Our witness is our most effective witness. In other words, our witness with each other Our unity is the most effective witness we have. And Jesus said that. Jesus says they will know that you're followers because you love one another. Personally, I don't want to teach belonging, okay? And I say this a lot up here, but I don't want to teach it. I want to experience it. And I'm sure you would rather experience it than hear me talk about it. We want to experience this belongingness. And this commitment is what breeds belonging. Whether it's slavery, or wh- whether it's uh, you're a slave like Onesimus, or whether you, you flaked out like Mark, witness is our most effective witness. And we share this graced history of the gospel. They are to soak in the scriptures. These letters, they were supposed to read and communicate with each other, and it's, it's a, they're authoritative, and they read it in community to develop wisdom. They read it in community. And this is very important because we don't... We are so lucky that we all have copies of the Bible. Some of us have five, six copies of the Bible in our home. These people did not. Many of them were illiterate, but they read it together, and I am convinced that this is how we are supposed to read the Scripture That it's not just to get rules, and it's not just to get, uh, you know, doctrine. It's to get wisdom. And rather than looking for rules, we need to look for values. What's important? What is God saying here in the big picture? This is what gives us wisdom. We may find some rules in the scripture, but what wisdom is, is how to choose the best path when life gets messy. When you have a child who comes out gay, or when you have an experience with a, with a family member who ends up homeless, how do you deal with that? That's wisdom. That's what's the best path forward. But we are to soak ourselves in scriptures with the Holy Spirit to give wisdom, to get wisdom, and they are to commit to, they are com- to, commit to spiritual transformation. These believers, Paul says, you're committed to maturity, you're committed to growth. He says in verse, verse 9, verse 10, he says, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you greetings to receive instructions about him. And then he goes on to say that to work in the kingdom of God so that you can prove yourself to be mature and wise. That's what we're getting at. They're committed to spiritual transformation. The best thing that they can bring to their church in Colossae is their own transformation. And I say the best things that you and I can bring to Shepherd of the Valley is our own personal transformation. That if we are on this journey of becoming like Christ, of developing and having the mind of Christ, that's the best thing you can bring to the church. You may have other t- get talents about doing soundboard and, and, and art or construction. All these kinds of things are all great. But the best thing you can bring is your journey with Jesus. Your transformation. They are to recognize personal responsibility. Now I don't know what they were talking what Paul was talking about when he says, See to it that you complete the work that you received in the Lord, but there is a personal responsibility that we take on. That we take on ourselves. But make sure it's your responsibility and not God's. Don't try to do what God's supposed to do. Let God do what is his to do, and let me do what is mine to do. One of the things I did not like about being a missionary is raising support. I did not like it at all. To ask people for money, that is really hard to do. And I finally had to realize I had to get up the courage to knock on the door. But I also had to realize that it was God's job to open the heart. He opens the heart, I knock on the door. Let God do what is his to do, and you do what is yours to do. God opens hearts, we knock on doors. We ask. That's responsibility. They speak the truth with love and gentleness. Paul does not spin the truth. He doesn't hide the truth. He says, Tychicus, go and tell them everything. Tell them everything about us. We are not spinning the truth. We are not hiding the truth. This truth is where wisdom is found. In in Psalm 51, uh, David says, says, give me truth in my inner soul so that I will have wisdom. Truth and wisdom go together. And we speak the truth to each other with love and gentleness. And it all begins with a companionship with Christ. A mutual companionship. We companion with God, and God companions with us. And what do companions do? They listen. Nothing falls to the ground. We treasure the words we hear, and God treasures the words he hears from us. Dan Rather asked Mother Teresa once, he says, well, what do you do when you pray? And she goes, I listen. And he goes, well, what does God do? And she says, he listens. That's mutual attending. Mutual attending to each other. It is this intimate relationship, a preference for Christ. That's where it all begins. That's where the wisdom begins, this preference for Christ. I don't know if you've ever noticed those letters in the book of Revelation. Uh, Jesus sends these letters to the different churches. Do you ever notice that the instructions to every church is different? I mean, I, I find that really strange because we think that these are these are for everything or everybody, and they are, they are helpful, but we need the hall of it to see the big picture. But to each church, he says something different. But you know what he tells every single church? I know you, I know you, and then he gives them instructions. This is where it's at. This is this this mutual companionship with Christ, where Christ tells us, I know you, listen to me. And isn't it amazing that he listens to us, that he treasures our words as much as we treasure his words? And that's where it all begins. The way I see this, <clears throat> this section is that this is a group of men and women, a group of men and women who have a passion for the preference of Christ with the purpose that they grow in wisdom and maturity so that they can discern and do the will of God. Let me repeat that one more time. This is a group of people, a group of men and women, who have a passion for the preference of God with the purpose of growing and maturing in wisdom and spirituality so that they can discern and do the will of God. That pretty much sums up why Shepherd of the Valley exists, that we are a group of men and women with a passion for the preference, for the passion for a preference of God with the purpose that we will grow, that we will mature, that we will get wise so that we can discern and do the will of God. Let's pray. Father, we confess that um, we get hung up on so many details, on so many things that just are just abstract ideas. Father, we want to see you in the world, we want to see you in the presence, we want to hear your voice, we want to walk with you. And Father, I just ask for a passion for us as individuals and a passion for us as a community to have a preference for Jesus Christ in everything that we do and say. In the name of Jesus, amen.